Welcome to the Lake Erie Regional Grape Programs podcast, Between the Vines. I'm here with Andy Musa. Um, I'm recording this in March uh, while Andy is still hanging around as a team member, but by the time you listen to this, Andy will uh, have retired. When I joined the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program in 2008, one of the things that made joining this team easy and made it easy to sort of be, um, you know, jump onto other people's work and start, you know, throwing out numbers about what advances have been made in applied research and how growers could do a better job. What made that easy is I had three other team members that between the three of them had almost 50 years of experience in grapes. Um, and well over 50 years of experience in agriculture and around um i think it was around 30 years of experience just on the lake erie regional grape program so so three team members sort of all average 10 years of experience on the team and so really i was the only new guy i was the only one who had to learn anything and i had you know two and a half three mentors to help figure it out um that is not where the Lake Erie Regional Break Program is going to be when you see this podcast. We're going to be down to maybe um, 17 years of experience and most of it's going to be mine. <laughs> so we're, we're not going to be the same kind of team. We're going to do the best we can and we are going to um, also do the best to add experience. Uh, as I said, it's March. I don't know how that's going to go and we're very hopeful that we are able to add some experience to this team to help out growers in our region. Um, but one of the other things we wanted to do is to take an opportunity to use the last couple of um, months or, or 10 or 12 weeks that we've got with Andy uh, and and get some stuff recorded down because um, we certainly don't want, you know, some of the things that Andy has learned over the years or shared with growers to ever be lost because we certainly don't want to, you know, sort of lose the knowledge that we've gained. Um, and, you know, a lot of other things have been done to sort of preserve, preserve research and make sure that we, you know, growers are still successful, but this is just one more, I think, sort of tool in that toolbox. So Andy, thank you very much for joining me, you know, for the last 14 years and also joining me today as we start sort of this series in uh, discussing with you some of the experience you've had with the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program. First off, I can't believe you've been here for 14 years already. Oh my gosh. You're <laughs> I, I did that math quickly, but yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> wow. That's yeah, I had crazy. the reputation for just being the, you know, the least experienced person on the team for a long, long time because we, like I said, we were, I was uh, very fortunate to walk into a position where everybody had a ton of experience. Um, it made it very easy to figure things out and start to get my feet wet. But but no longer, yeah, yeah. It's been 14 years, and a good. It's a really good thing. It's at least been that long because, um, you know, Jen's been great. She's been here for three years. But uh, anybody else we've got. Uh, since we have, uh, we have not, if, if you guys remember, we were not doing podcasts when Tim Weigel was here. So, so if you're listening from far away, he was a really important team member as well. Uh, but we were doing video blogs. And so you may recognize him from that if you go to our website and catch up on the old video blogs, but we were not doing podcasts. 
Uh, so we, we've got a few more listeners from around the world since then. But between the two of them, there was a lot of experience that uh, that helped me out a ton. And uh, at least I had the 14 years with them to try to figure this out. And we've got Jen now, which is great. She's been here for three years, which is which is way better than if she had started yesterday. Um, but we've also got some really big holes to fill on the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program extension team going forward. And I'm as I'm excited to figure out how that goes, but also a little scared because we, you know, we we were fortunate for a really long time to to be spoiled with with that kind of experience in this in this region. So um, when when actually did you get ex get interested in extension work, Andy? <laughs> we're going back a little bit here. I but, bet. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we covered that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I graduated from Penn State with a bachelor's in 79. And very soon after that, I, I um, got a position with the Apple Pest Management Program as a field scout down at uh, the Tree Fruit Lab in Biglerville, Pennsylvania. And uh, I think that's, you know, that was my first uh, really experience uh, in relating to growers because I was out in their apple orchards and peach orchards and would be scouting. So we'd interact with the growers uh, and the individual growers down there. And then that information that we got would be, you know, related to the growers uh, so that they could use it. Pretty much after, after that, again, continue, continuing on that, I, I, after the field scout position, I, I got a job up here in um, Northeast uh, working at, at that time, it was the Erie County Field Research Laboratory before they changed the name. And um, I got a job with Skip Jubb, who was the entomologist there then. And at that time, I worked on various uh, projects under him concerning, you know, different insect and disease pests. And at that time also, since that was grant money, it was soft money, um, I was employed, uh, you know, so many months out of the year, whatever. So I also managed what was called the Lakeshore Crop management cooperative and what that was it was a non-profit grower owned pest management farm cooperative and it was started by skip jubb and he got growers interested and so um i was a field scout for that but then i also managed that and again every week we would go out and um, scout the vineyards for insects and diseases and um, then we would relate that to all the members, each of the members that were in in the um, uh, cooperative at that time. So um, again, every, you know, I don't know how many acres we had involved, but there was quite a few vineyards. So that was really a very early uh, pest management program that, like I said, was nonprofit grower owned. So they, they paid fees um, so much per acre and for the service. And so that that both so both of those jobs were those are both entomology jobs and grapes, right? So that was your transition into grapes. Yes, that okay. was my transition into grapes. Working with so then when you started with extension, that was in '92, right? Is that right? Extension was uh, in '97. Before that, okay, I, um, you you were at the lab. Yeah, so. I got a full full time position as a in 1988 as a research assistant. At right. The lab in Northeast. So 97, you were part of the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program. Uh, what was the 
what was your first sort of applied research project there? Thinking back, <laughs> I'm not sure if these started when I was at the, the lab uh, in 88 or when I went into, uh, when I actually officially started with extension in 97. Yeah. But during those times, um, I would say, again, starting with extension, you're working with, um, and, and I want to make this clear, you know, you're not doing a lot of this research yourself. You're collaborating with a lot of faculty members, uh, other extension personnel, uh, staff from uh, Penn State and other universities. So, you know, any of the stuff that I did and a lot of extension uh, educators do is you, it, a lot of it has to do with collaboration. So, you know, I wanted to make that clear. Um, and again, since I've worked on different commodities, um, I'm not going to go into some of those projects that were uh, extension related, working with growers. Uh, I worked uh, with potatoes, tree fruit, small fruit, but I'll just talk about some of the great ones. Uh, sure. Probably one of the first ones that comes to mind is, um, and most of these are berry moth related. Um, I have worked on other, other uh, insect and disease pests of grapes, but as far as berry moth goes, probably the first big one uh, taking it to the field was um, working on mating disruption. Uh, and at that time, they had um, pheromone, great berry moth pheromones that um, were embedded in these twist ties, just like you'd, you'd tie a uh, trash bag with or whatever. And they were plastic coated and um, the growers would tie these to the top, top trellis wire and you do so many per, um, so many per, acre and I can't remember I think it might have been 200 uh, per acre something like that and the idea behind that was that these uh, twist ties would emit mass amounts of pheromones and the idea was to disrupt the, the females uh, the males from finding the females to prevent mating so that would, would I would say would be the first one that was actually where we put some of the research-based um, uh, projects actually into growers' vineyards. Yeah. We did that up here in Northeast. And, and Tim also, Tim Weigel, um, also did that um, with uh, grape growers in New York. Yeah, I mean, the really interesting part of that work, and it seems like sometimes this happens more often than it should, and I, I don't know what you do about it, but um, there's some really good reasons why we don't see that happening in vineyards because it was not a viable thing in most commercial vineyards at the time but unfortunately i'm pretty confident that it would be today and it's just that it's not a product that's available commercially anymore so if anybody out there you know wants to make it available we we have the benefit of the research being already done and really the only thing that has changed is pesticides have gotten a lot safer and in getting safer they've gotten more expensive and you know presumably the cost of pheromones hasn't changed much and we're you know sort of at the tail end of that research the one thing that was probably always going to be cost pro prohibitive was you know um the application of those pheromones like like you said when you started that research it was with twist ties and they've made it much more efficient to disperse pheromones because pheromones are not just used in that sense they're used you know 
for other mating disruptions. They're used in other crops. So, so they've lowered the cost of the practical cost of using pheromones. We just don't have access to that pheromone anymore. So hopefully we can get, get there again, because that is something that economically would, would now I'm pretty confident would make a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you're right. As far as with those twist ties, it was the, the application and the time it took for the, the growers to apply it. And that I think was one of the biggest downfalls. Um, the other thing since then, they, they, they've come up with a, a splat system where you would, uh, you know, uh, shoot it like with a paintball gun onto uh, the, the vineyard posts. Um, and, and I know that um, Rufus Isaacs out of um, Michigan State worked a lot with that. Um, and then they also had um, what they called this puffer system. And I know Jody Timer worked with this is um, where you would actually uh, it it was, uh, I think they used some type of Venturi or some type of motor that that would actually put on a timer and you would puff out the pheromone. And that to me looked like that would have been probably one of the best methods to, to apply that. And I know that Jody had some pretty good success with that, but one of the companies she was working at there was a package where you also had to have some pheromone traps out there with a camera and you would, they would have a camera inside the pheromone trap to see if you were catching any. And if you were catching any, then it meant that, you know, maybe you're, you're weren't releasing enough pheromone into the vineyard at that time. And with that, having that camera system and then that information had to be relayed to this company it just didn't make it uh, economically feasible. Right. Um, the, the other thing with, with the pheromones, and I agree, I think, I think it, it, if it was available, it, it could actually work. It was economic for the grower. But one of the reasons um, it worked out in uh, the Western part of the country, they used it, I think, a lot in tree fruit uh, orchards. And the idea, though, was that you would have large acres um, that were involved in this. And in that case, you know, it, it worked very well. But out here, when we worked on it, we would have, you know, X amount of growers, uh, say in this block would, would be using it, but then the guy right next to him wouldn't be. So it wasn't like that large acreage that would be inundated with this pheromone. So therefore, you know, um, you could get mated females coming in from another vineyard or from the woods that didn't have this pheromone into the vineyard already mated. And so that was some of the problems. We just didn't have the acreage, I think, that that was inundated with that pheromone to, to make it work as well. Right. Yeah. Which is why that cost had to come down. And I think at this point could, um, at least relative to the, some of the expensive insecticides we're using now that we were not using back then at all. I mean, the price point of what we use to target insecticides, this, those pests has changed quite a bit in, in the last, um, I mean, even splat was, they were attempting to commercialize that. That was the first conference I ever went to. So that was 14 years ago. Um, so, and it was really right on the edge then, because even then, um, you know, Obviously, at that point, nobody was spraying something like 
um, you know, nobody was dusting anymore at that point or anything like that, but we still had seven and some very affordable insecticides that are, we don't have access to anymore or they're not effective anymore. So, so that market has completely changed. Um, and, and I think that that's another good point when you're bringing up the insecticides, you know, some of these systems like the, the um, mating disruption, you know, was expensive. And the fact that growers could use some cheaper broad spectrum insecticides and maybe put on a few, you know, I, I would have growers say, well, geez, I could use this material this many times and still right. not cost me, you know, as much. Right. Oh so, yeah. We, were, we, we had a lot of different things that we were facing as far as cost wise, that just didn't make sense to a grower. Right. But I, I mean, it's really interesting because I think the potential is still there. Um, you know, sometimes research is, is hampered by commercialization, but the potential is really still there for that to be relevant, even though um, it was obviously held up a little bit, despite the fact that, you know, from a scientific perspective, it, while it didn't work flawlessly, I think, you know, some growers were hoping it would like replace insecticides. Um, you know, it, it obviously did work. Yeah, and, the, and the other thing is just like, say, with um, some insecticides or fungicides that, you know, when they start looking at them and they look at the acreage that they're being used on, a company says, well, geez, it, it, you know, we're going to pull it from this market because it's just not economically viable for us. Mm -hmm. Whereas, so when you look at the grape acreage here, as compared to California, which doesn't have the berry moth, right? Then it's very minimal. So I think that's why the companies also got out of it. For sure. Um, so today we talked about grape berry moth. We're going to keep doing this over the next few weeks. Um, you've been talking about grape berry moth for years. One of the, the things I think I've heard both you and Tim say in the past is just, you know, yeah, we're going to talk about grape berry moth again. <laughs> but, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but at least for your career, and I know that sometimes things could change. We've been talking about spotted lanternfly and horrible things like that recently, but it's been the most important insect, um, you know, facing grapes in our region, right? Yes, it is. And, and I would say um, region-wide, uh, definitely it is the most important insect, mm -hmm. um, again, since it's a direct pest, but... Um, now, spotted lanternfly may or may not replace that as the most important pest. I, I kind of think that, uh, um, at least up in our region, I'm going to be uh, optimistic and say that when spotted lanternfly gets here, I think we will be able to, um, we will be able to handle it and, yeah. and manage it um, with, say, a lot less economic problems and say down in the southeast yeah but yeah berry moth uh, definitely is um is the the most important economically important insect pests so was it the most challenging thing for you or um was it was that something else no i would say as far as insect pests go i would yeah. say it it definitely is because you know we're still we're still battling that pest um we're still trying to get you know, better handles on management of that pest. Um, we've come a long way, mm -hmm. but we're still nowhere um, where I think, you know, we should be or could be. 
Well, and it seems like sometimes you, you would make advances and then so would the past. So it's, there's like an ebb and flow to it with that. There isn't, that's not always the case with, with other, certainly with other insects. Like sometimes you build a model with some of these minor insects and, you know, once you teach people how to take care of it, it's just, it's almost gone, uh, relatively speaking. And, and with berry moth, that doesn't seem like it's been the case. Um, but um, yes, like you said, as far as insects go, that was the most challenging thing you faced. We'll be back in two weeks. I think we're going to talk a little bit about diseases and um, uh, how that might have been challenging as well. And uh, what what has happened there over the last, you know, 25, 30 years and what, what Andy's perspective is on it. So Andy, once again, um, it has been a great 14 years for me and I'm looking forward to the next couple of months as well. Um, but for those of you listening, Andy has already retired. So I'm sure at this point we are missing him terribly. And um, thank you all for joining us. Andy, thank you for joining us the last 14, or the, joining me the last 14 years and joining me on the podcast today. So we'll be back in two weeks with diseases. Thanks a lot.